Well, I consider it a great honor and a wonderful privilege as your pastor and as a church, together as we pause for a moment of silence and pray as we remember the victims and the families and the heroes that lost and gave their lives for this country on September 11, 2001. It was 15 years ago today. Men and women that were trapped in the crosshairs of senseless acts of just total condemnation on American soil. Let us pause for just a moment of silence and then let us pray. I want to pray first of all for the families today. There are probably many of them that are still very bitter about this and I understand that to a degree. Help them to get the message of grace and the message of your love because only the message of your love and the message of your grace can allow us to extend that same kind of love and that same kind of grace to people that we would say don't deserve it. The truth of the matter is, none of us ever deserved it. So Daddy, I just lift those people up right now. It is not time that heals all wounds. It's truth and grace. Father, I want to thank you that we are strengthened in our hearts today as we think about your goodness and your mercy. Thank God we have a merciful God. I don't know as though I can say I understand and can articulate this mercy, but Father, we receive it by faith and we receive your mercy and your grace just simply because we see it in manifestation. And Daddy, I want to thank you that even since that date, you have protected us in ways that we cannot see, ways that we do not know. Daddy, this is a time for people to rise up across the nation it's a time for the church to rise up and begin to minister a message that draws people and not pushes them away. We thank you, Father, that we don't need a tragedy. We don't need a catastrophe in our nation to begin preparing messages of hope and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The tragic batterings of September 11, 2001 forever changed the lives and the landscape of our country. In the twinkling of an eye, the Twin Towers of Lower Manhattan disappeared from the skyline. It was a day of great anguish on American soil. And as I was meditating about that, because I think we can all go back in time. It was a Tuesday. It was mid-morning. And I think we can all remember where we were at when that event took place. How we were glued to the televisions. We didn't want to believe this could be happening. This must be a movie of some sort. But as I was meditating about that horrific day, I was reminded that 2,000 years ago, my Jesus, your Jesus, our Jesus, was also battered. It was at a whipping post, and it was at a cross. 2,000 years ago, my Jesus hung on a cross, and he forgave the sins of the entire world. And then he died, and he fell like a kernel of wheat into the ground. 2,000 years ago, there was great anguish, tremendous anguish at ground zero as Mary, the very mother of Jesus, wept for the darling of heaven. 2,000 years later, it's where we live today. There is still anguish. There is still condemnation. There is still guilt. There is still shame. There is still confusion and chaos. I would understand that if that was in the hearts of people that don't know God, but this is even in the hearts of believers. 
I've asked the Lord again and again. I said, Daddy, am I missing something? Tell me again. Why is there anguish? Why is there condemnation? Why is there confusion? Why is there hostility? Why is there unforgiveness in the hearts of even believers? And the answer is resoundingly the same every single time. He shares with me in my spirit what we've been talking about for the last two and a half years. It's really because of the mixture of covenants. You think, oh man, it can't be just something that it is that simple. Until a person is free in their minds from performance-based Christianity, until they know for certain that their sins have been forgiven past, present, and future, they will never appreciate the true gift that they possessed. They'll never appreciate it. Many ministers do not want to preach the finished work of grace. After we come to the Lord, that condemnation and that guilt that we carried into this relationship with Him and that shame and fear, they don't leave automatically because they're stored in an area that didn't get saved. All that junk is not in your spirit it, so much as it's, it's in your soul. I mean, it was there too, but it's in your soul because Jesus gives us a brand new spirit. We're brand new. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But it's that stuff, that condemnation that's trapped in our souls. I've actually heard ministers say, I can't preach that message because if I do, my congregation might run amok. I can't tell them they're forever forgiven by grace alone. I did. I preached a whole message a while back called Forever Forgiven by grace alone. They say if I tell them that they're forever forgiven, they might go out and get caught up in ungodliness and worldly passions. You know what? You could just settle that issue if you just stepped over into Titus. I love these scriptures. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. For the grace of God. I mean, underscore that and highlight that in your heart this morning. It's the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Watch what it does now. It teaches us to say no. No to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. But it's all one big thought that he's thinking. But when he says it teaches us to say no, what is it? God is not an it. For the grace of God is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, let me tell you something. If you're relying on the law to restrain you from worldly passions and ungodliness, you're going to have a lot of disappointments in life. You're going to be disappointed a lot, and you're going to stay trapped in all that stuff. Many ministers do not want to preach the finished work of grace for fears that their tithes and their offerings might dry up. I was reminded that Jesus one day was kind of standing against a wall, and he was watching people come up and put their offerings into the treasury. And he watched those Pharisees walk up with all their tassels and their robes and their perfect posture, you know, Pharisees didn't walk like this. <laughs> they had to stick that chest out, reach in there and get their big check, look around, make sure everybody was watching them, and put it in there, in the offering. That didn't impress Jesus. But the widow, who did walk up probably like this with her little cane, and she probably dug way down deep in her apron, and she got out two little copper coins. She didn't look around to see who was looking, she just put it in there and walked away. 
that impressed Jesus. Now you say, wait a minute now. All that big giving, it was the wrong heart. It wasn't a heart of grace. It was a heart of law. We're supposed to do this. We have to do this. I want to tell you something, friends. Let me tell you something. I have given more under the message of grace than I ever did law. Law, listen, I was treasurer of the church for a long time. Under law, I want to tell you something. You'll write that tithe check out to the penny. $162.14? What? What? Under the law, you'll do that. Listen, I'm not beating anybody up for doing that because that's all what we were taught. 10%? Listen, it's just easy math. You don't even need a calculator to figure 10%. Just move that decimal point one to the left and there's your tithe. It's just real simple math. But under love, that widow, what she did is she gave all she had. She gave out of her living, out of her substance. She gave it all. And that really impressed Jesus. I want to tell you something. Motivations count. And the truth of the matter is, every minister that I know, and there's not that many, that begin to preach about the finished work of grace, it impacts their offerings and their giving tremendously, initially. Initially. People figure out, I mean, I really don't have to give and I can still be blessed. We're not under the old covenant now. But listen, that doesn't stop me from giving. I'm more appreciative of that. I want to give more. I want to meet needs more than I did under the old covenant mentality. Are are you with me? It's not where I want to go with this message, but I'm just helping you see why ministers do not want to mess with the message of grace sometimes, the finished work of grace. Many ministers do not want to preach the finished work of grace for fear that they might have to learn how to pray all over again. I want to tell you something. I had to learn how to pray all over again. You put a guy in the hospital for a a couple of months uh, from an injury, you know, where he's been in a coma, when he comes out of that, I almost assure you he'll have to learn how to walk and talk all over again. And it was kind of like that for me. It was kind of like I was in this coma in life, you know, and all of a sudden God began to give me eyes to see and I had to, God, I've got to learn how to walk and talk and pray and preach all over again. You know what? I didn't like that at first. I did not like that. Many ministers don't want to preach this finished work of grace because that means they've got to scrap all their canned sermons. Just go be a minister one time. You'll appreciate all the sermons God gives you. You'll save them all thinking, there might be another opportunity. I can preach that same message again somewhere and I won't have to study so hard that week. It's called a canned sermon. I want to tell you something. One thing that you can love about this ministry is every single week, whether I minister, my wife, or Pastor Steve, or whoever, it's fresh bread. It's right out of the oven. It just got baked. We don't reach back into the archives and say, what did we preach back in 2002? We've not done that one time. Everything we've ministered, we have ministered to you the same week God gave it to us. I didn't have this message last week. I just had it a couple of days ago, okay? Amen. The culprit leading the pack that allows condemnation to rest upon the people of God is the mixture of covenants. That is the main culprit. It's the Usain Bolt. It's the one that's way out in front of all the other ones. I said this before, I'll say it again. You can't take blue paint, mix it with yellow paint, and get red paint. In fact, you can't mix any two colors together and get red. Red's a primary color, and no other colors make red. But sometimes we think, if I can just concoct this and this and bring this together and this together, there's going to be wonderful harmony and I'm going to have more than what I... No, no. Not when you take the old covenant of law and you start mixing it with the new covenant of grace. It just doesn't happen. You cannot mix old covenant with new covenant and get life. You can't do it. 
What I mean by life, I'm not saying if, if we walk under old covenant that we won't go to heaven someday. I'm not saying that. You'll still go to heaven. But what I'm saying is, I don't know if you can enjoy life to its fullness. It will have you in tears all the time, here and there. It will have you in fears here and there. It will have you in worry. One covenant is the ministry, the Bible says, of death. Calls it condemnation, actually. The old covenant is the ministry of condemnation. The other is the ministry of everlasting life. One is the ministry of law. One is the ministry of grace. They are not compatible with each other. They make horrible roommates. In Genesis, in I think it's verse 26, chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image. So we were made in the exact image of our Father. So Satan comes along and he convinces Adam to commit one senseless act of condemnation and it robbed Adam of his innocence. One senseless act. But Jesus won our innocence back through the cross, through one act of righteousness and then planted us inside him where we were sealed away from condemnation in our spirit. Just read Romans chapter 5. You'll see what I'm talking about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14, we find these words. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Watch what he says now. For the letter kills. In other words, he's saying the law kills. The old covenant system kills. That letter, he says, kills. But he says, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, and it did, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses, transitory though it was, in other words, it was just passing through, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So, again, when we think about the law, is it perfect? Absolutely. Is it still here? Absolutely. Shouldn't be in your life as a believer, but it is still here. It's perfect, it's holy, it's righteous. So, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory In other words, it's saying if you just laid them side by side, the law would look like it was brilliant because it tells us what to do. It gives us a bunch of framework. Until we bring in Jesus, we bring in grace and we lay it side by side and we go, whoa, that is not so glorious anymore. And it was transitory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope We are very bold. I like that scripture. I really like that scripture. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. You know what? It's time to be bold. I'm not talking about being radically dumb, but I'm talking about being bold. I'm talking about being bold in Christ. And the more you think about what God has done in your life, and the more you get this condemnation off of you, the bolder you will get. All of us can be the boldest people that Kenosha has ever known. Some of you are already getting there. I love that though. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And then he says, oh, I like this too. We are not like Moses. We're not like Moses. We're like Christ. Quit trying to be like Moses. There are people out there that want to be like Moses. I could care less about Moses. I want to be like Jesus. 
I want to look like Jesus. I want to sound like Jesus. I want to talk like Jesus. I don't want to talk like Moses. I don't want to think like Moses. I want to think like my Christ. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Man, he would come down off of that mountain being with God. Man, his face was lit up like a man, like a light bulb. I mean, that's like a Frankenstein movie, man. I mean, here's Moses coming down and the mountain man's got those big old tablets in his hands, man. Face glowing like a big old light bulb. That is kind of spooky if you think about it, isn't it? And I think I shared this once before, but the time when my teenage boys had a boy spend the night and he wore big glasses, thick glasses, so he took his glasses off and slept on the love seat right across from where I would sit in the morning. And I didn't want to disturb him one morning, but I wanted to get up and spend my time with the Lord. And I, after I spent time with the Lord, I opened up my laptop just to do some studying. And that laptop was just reflecting all that light up in my face. Totally dark room except for my face. And that boy laying across the other side of the room woke up. And I mean, he just about came unglued. I, the guy screamed like, wow, what is that? I said, buddy, it's just me. Can you imagine? I mean, this would have been even worse. I mean, coming down, it's broad daylight, friends, and, and his face is just all lit up <laughs> like a Christmas tree, man. Hallelujah. We are not like Moses. But their minds were made dull. Watch what he says. But their minds were made dull for to this day. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing this. So he was saying, even now, to this day, he says, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. I mean, there's your first hint. He's saying, listen, what goes around comes around. You want to keep reading the Old Covenant? You're going to get the same thing that they got. Here's what he says. It has not been removed. The Old Covenant, I'm talking about the law itself, has not been removed only from our lives. But it is still there to bring people to Christ. It's the same schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Uh, like I've said before, it's like the bus driver. It's like the chauffeur. He says, all aboard, drives you to the cross, hands you off to Christ, and then goes back and gets another busload of, of people. It's kind of the image I have in my mind. Mr. Law, you know. So he says, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Does it say that? How can you skim over something like this and not get happy? It has not been removed, but because only in Christ. And are you in Christ? Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. He says, listen, in Christ, it has been removed. If you're outside of Christ, it has not been removed. Or another way to say it, as believers, when we look to Christ, as we're looking to Christ and not to ourselves, it gets out of the way. The former glory... What's the glory of the Old Covenant is talking about? The word condemnation is made from two words, condemn and nation. The men that inflicted our country with condemnation on September 11, 2001 were sincere people, but like Satan, sincerely wrong and short-sighted. You see, Satan figured if I could just crucify Jesus, I could get him out of the way, then all this would be all mine. Short-sighted, wasn't he? Just dumb, if you will. In the aftermath of Ground Zero, there emerged the cross. In the aftermath of Ground Zero, there emerged the cross. In the aftermath of the resurrection, there emerged the Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, we find these words. He says, you were dead in sins. 
You were dead in your sins at one time, and your sinful desires were not yet cut away. I know there was a time that that applied to me. There was a time I was dead in my sins, and there was a time my sinful desires were not cut away, but grace came in like clippers and just started cutting that stuff out of my life. Then he gave you a share in the very life of Christ. Friends, you can buy shares in any company that's publicly traded today, but I want to tell you something. The share that he gave us is the richest and most powerful and most expensive share there is. And all it takes is one. You notice how it says he gave you a share in the very life of Christ. Watch this now. For he forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you, the list of his commandments which you had not obeyed. He took this list of sins and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. In this way, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. He took away the power for Satan to be able to accuse you of sin. God doesn't listen to Satan's plea. I know in the Old Testament that story about Job, but that's not how it works with you and me. Satan can't go and knock on God's door and say, hey, do you mind? Now, I have preached that in the past. I know I have preached that in the past, but I don't believe that now. I don't believe Satan has access to God Satan has no voice and no access to God's presence. It says, he took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. And God openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross where all your sins were taken away. As Jesus breathed his last breath, it was then. It was right then. It was that moment. It was the perfect moment of time when Jesus breathed his last breath, the twin tablets referred to as the Ten Commandments, the written code, the law, the Ten Commandments. When Jesus breathed his last breath, guess what happened to them for the believer? They disappeared from the skyline. The old covenant was replaced by the new covenant of grace in the twinkling of an eye. For the first time, believers could plant their flags in soil that makes religious people angry. It makes them mad. Believers, oh man, they say, you can't plant your flag in a place like that. Someone under the law says, you can't plant your flag in a place like this. Hey, talk to my Jesus. You talk to my Jesus. I'll plant that flag anywhere I want to. He's the one that gave it to me. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, we find these words. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. That scripture speaks of a new covenant. It speaks of what Jesus did. It reassures my heart that I had not one thing to do with it. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, are these words. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. He's my co-signer, friends, and he has never defaulted on anything he has put his name on. He signed his last will and testament with his blood, and he put your name in there, and he put my name in there. You say, Pastor Mark, wait a minute now. Are you telling me that it's okay to willfully go out and sin, willfully go out and break the Ten Commandments? Absolutely not. I am not saying that. I am not saying that. I'm saying we are no longer governed by that which was chiseled. We are governed by that which was nailed. And his name is Jesus. That's exactly the way the Holy Spirit said it to me. You are not governed by that which was chiseled. You are governed by that which was nailed. Hallelujah. We live by a much higher law. It's the law of love. The law of grace. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, 
you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. I love that. Do you hear that? He says you were called to be free. You don't work to be free. You were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. When it says love your neighbor as you love yourself, I was trying to think this morning. I thought, God, I can't remember the last time I was mean to me. I mean, think about it. I really can't. That I was really mean and unkind and ungracious to me. And the Bible says, this is what love looks like. You love your neighbor as you love you. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It was for the love that Christ had for you and me that sustained him as Jesus was battered, tattered, and splattered at the whipping post and then subsequently nailed to the cross. And friends, it was the love of Jesus that introduced to you and me the almost scandalous message and covenant of grace. A covenant that Jesus said yes and amen to. Did you know that every one of the men that flew planes into the trade centers, the Pentagon, and the field called the Diamond T Mine in Stony Creek, Pennsylvania, that every one of them believed with all their hearts that they were doing good. They believed that God would be pleased with them and that the riches of heaven awaited them in death. You see, that's the mean-spiritedness of religion and not embracing the Son of God, Jesus himself. Your default system is Old Covenant. Your default system is the letter. Your default system is not Christ. They were essentially saying, God, you're a little slow in condemning people, so we'll do it for you. You know what? These men were totally oblivious to what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Did you hear that? He that believeth on him is not condemned. In other words, there is no condemnation for them that believe on him. Who's him? Him is Christ. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But then he says, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So we don't have to go around condemning people. Jesus himself said, if you don't believe on me, the son of God, you're already condemned. Your sentence is out there in the future somewhere, but you're already condemned. He said, you're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemnation was released on September 11, 2001, not at the hands of God, but by the hands of men that were indoctrinated with religion and false hope. The name of today's message, as you can see, is not one. It's a message that's designed to strip away the condemnation and the anguish and the darkness and the chaos. And it's a message that's designed to strip away the towering tablets of the law and replace it with grace and love. The two words that you're looking at right now, not one, come from the Greek word udais. Udais. Udais is the Greek word behind our English word no. N-O. Anybody know what that means? No. <laughs> no. It's udais. Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, when you find this word udais, a lot of times what the translators did is they just said, let's just give them one word, no. But the word literally means not one. Now there's a difference between no and not one because no can mean not now or not this time. But not one, not one means every single time. And you'll see how important that is in the scripture here in just a minute. Most of us do not like to hear the word no. 
but it's a healthy word and it's a liberating word especially when you find it in certain places like this one right here Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 there is therefore now watch this no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus that little word no in front of that big word condemnation is that Greek word again udice it translates as not one so Romans chapter 8 verse 1 literally reads like this there is therefore presently because it says now there is therefore presently not one and condemnation is just an adverse sentence a sentencing if you will he says there is therefore presently not one adverse sentence to them which are in Christ Jesus no satanic power remains to accuse us of sin what good news once again the Greek word behind the English word no is udice it means not one here's how the word udice is formed It's formed by taking two Greek words and putting them together you take the word ude which means not and you take the Greek word heis which means one together when they're brought together it forms their Greek word udice it means not one so the question I had to ask the Holy Spirit why is it important to know why are you taking me down this road Holy Spirit what's going on here why is it important to know that the word no translates into not one because as human beings no's don't always mean no and our no's may have exceptions to them or they may have expirations to them my wife and I got married in April of 2001 just a few months before the Trade Center attacks. We had lost our jobs, both of us, the month before we got married. But you know what? I looked at it as an opportunity to fix up the house, and I started going in Ace Hardware. And as I was going in Ace Hardware, I kept telling her, I said, man, I want to work for that place. I don't have a job. I'm going to work for that place. I just want to work there. I took my resume, and I went in there one day, and I asked to see the manager. And they took me back to his office, and as I was walking to his office, he was coming out, and we just kind of met abruptly like this. And it was the weirdest thing. I didn't plan on this. I said, I'm ready to go to work for your company. And with a straight face, he said, we're not hiring. I said, well, I'm ready to go to work. I said, no, we're not hiring. This ain't working, God. You told me to put this application in here. I said, well, can I fill out an application? What part of no, we're not hiring, don't you understand? Rude to me. And I said, well, can I leave my resume? I suppose. You ever have any people do that to you? I mean, they look at you like you got some right to live. I mean, that's what the guy was doing. I did not take that no that day as a final no because I know humans can change their answers. And I went back again. No! I went back again. No! I went back again. No! Finally, they had to move him out of the company. You're out of here now. Bring someone else in. Yes! You're the guy we're looking for. And I worked for that company for 10 months. I had the time of my life. I was a problem solver. You got a problem? We got hardware. We can fix it. I love working there. It's five minutes from my house. Oh, it was so nice. And then one day, my manager said, can you come in a little early? I said, sure, I'll come in early. And I had that funny feeling. Yeah, <laughs> Oh, I had that funny feeling. It's like, okay. I sat down with her at her desk, and she just proceed to say you know I made a decision to let you go uh, of course I was stunned uh, you know what listen I'm a big boy but I still get teary-eyed because I knew God had called me to that place 
and I knew I was making a difference. I looked at her and I said, can I ask you the reason why you want to let me go? She said, you make people angry. And I looked at her and I said, no, no. I don't know what your real reason is, but that's not it. She wouldn't elaborate. I took my badge off. I laid it on the desk. I pulled my key off the key ring. I laid it there. And I looked at my boss with sincerity and I said, can I pray for you before I leave? She looked at me and she said, well, I suppose. I said, no, that's, that's okay. Because I knew she wasn't receiving it. When I left that company that day, I felt crushed. Man, I wanted to go over her head. I wanted to call the, the general manager and the manager, the owner of the company, and tell him how unfair this was. And I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, not one phone call. Not one. I said, but God, this ain't fair. Not one. But God, this isn't right. Not one. How am I going to look? Not one. 20 days later, I stepped into a role of pastoring the church that was not planned, folks. And I pastored there for two years, and it was in those two years that I met this man right here, Steve Maya. It was during that time that I could pour into Steve's life that brought Steve to a place of grace and hope and love. And this is one of the most precious men. This couple here is one of the most precious couple you'll ever meet in your life. What you see here on Sundays is what you'll see anywhere outside of this church. I'm not kidding you about that. So all things were working together for the good, just like Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says. All things were working together for the good. I didn't like that, but God said not one. You see, that's why Jesus didn't open his mouth when, when he was being asked, are you really the son of God? They say you're the son of God. And the Bible says he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb before his shearers, and he spoke not a word. Why not? Why not? Because if he had opened up his mouth, he'd have talked him right out of the crucifixion, and he knew this was the right moment of time. This is my time right here. I'm not going to say anything to you because I've been squaring you all along the line. Every time you try to trap me, I square you, and I set you straight on this thing. So I'm not going to do it to you this time because this is the right moment of time. If our no's don't always mean no, then it doesn't take a quantum leap to entertain that maybe, just maybe, God's no's don't always mean no. God's no's might have limits on them or thresholds or expirations. You see, our no's have flexibility to them. Our no's are subject to change. Our no's can be worn down by begging and screaming and manipulative children. Our no's can be worn down by demanding spouses. We say no, and then we change our mind. Friends, let me tell you something. When God says no, he means udais. No, not one. So then we look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1 again. It contains the promise of no condemnation. Regardless if we deserve it or not, there are no limits, there are no exceptions, and there is no expirations. The promise of no condemnation is further strengthened by the supporting verse that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Christ says yes to all God's promises. Christ to say amen for us to the glory of God. There is no condemnation that is a promise by God, and Christ says 
Yes. It's like when Jesus heard his daddy say, son, there's going to be no condemnation to everybody I put inside of you. Jesus rose up and he said, daddy, that is something I will say yes and amen to. Amen. God's promises are not only no, but they are also yes and amen in Christ. Once again, the attackers on 911 were sincere men, but they were sincerely indoctrinated with false hope. In Psalm chapter 33, verses 17 through 22, the Bible says, A horse is a false hope for victory. It doesn't deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness. And that word loving kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It means the grace of God. So what are we hoping? We're hoping for His grace to deliver the souls from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Then it says it one more time. Let your loving kindness, that is your said grace, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. I want to tell you a story we have never shared with you in this church. My wife has a sister and two brothers. The men of the family are very military-minded. My wife's daddy spent two years in the Army and 20 years in the Navy and retired. His only two sons, her brothers, spent 20 years each in the Army and retired. When her brother Mike retired from the Army, he decided to continue to work for the government. Mike began to be a father. He had a boy named Matt and he had a boy named Jake. When Jake was very young, Jake was diagnosed with brain tumors, something a parent does not want to hear. Surgeries, chemo, all this stuff that would be associated with that. Family praying, standing like crazy. It was touch and go. We didn't know if Jake would live. He was very young. Jake asked the question that every one of us would ask over and over, the two words, why me? Why me? When he'd go to school and, and all the other kids could play and he had to be careful. Why me? Here's the thing I remember though. It was a day in September. Not only was it September, it was September 11th. Not only was it September 11th, but it was 2001. The very day all this was unleashed on our country. Jake had an appointment at the doctor's office. His daddy is a retired army man. They're the most disciplined people I know. They don't take off much work. But he needed to take his son to the doctor's office. Meanwhile, Flight 77 from American Airlines flew right into the Pentagon. Everybody on board that plane was killed, including 125 people in the Pentagon. Here's where the story takes an interesting twist. My wife's brother, Mike, was scheduled to be in the Pentagon that day in the very wing that Flight 77 flew into. But mercy said, not one. Not this one. I want to tell you something. God is faithful to answer our prayers. See, when we were praying for Jake, we weren't just praying for Jake, we were praying for his whole family. Provide for them, protect them. A few years ago, I began to receive the revelation of grace in a big way. And like my wife's nephew, Jake, I began to cry out to the Lord, Lord, why me? Surely there are other ministers that are more educated. There are ministers that are more eloquent in speaking. 
There are ministers that have more resources and more abilities. Why me? I'm going to share with you what the Lord shared with me in the quietness of this morning. Here's what he said. He said, son, I trust you. I have watched you weep many years for the soul in anguish. I have watched as you have treasured my word. You had a ground zero, and I had a ground zero also. You see, I started with ground when there was zero men. Not because I wanted a family or because I was lonely, because I was gracious and loving. And I knew, son, that you would not misrepresent my heart before men. That I am gracious, I am loving, I'm kind. And when there are things that happen in this world that you can't explain, I can. I see things that you don't see. I know things that you don't know. But don't you ever forget, I am loving and kind and gracious. My final scripture, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. The Bible begins by saying, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I love that first word. What is it? No. No weapon, not one weapon formed against me shall prosper. The greatest weapon and the most destructive weapon, if you will, the most lethal weapon that was ever formed against us was sin. And so when God says, even that weapon, even when that weapon was formed against you, it shall not prosper because I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in a protective environment called my son where it cannot prosper. It will not prosper. Our sins have been thoroughly punished in the body of Christ. Therefore, the weapon that I once feared has been removed once and all from my life. I don't have to walk around going, oh, did I sin today? I don't have to walk around like that anymore because they've all been paid for. I've been put inside Christ. Amen. Friends, the wonderful truth that reaches out to us from Romans chapter 8 is this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, not one. Father, I want to thank you for your mercy and your love today, Jesus. I want to thank you that condemnation has been checked very, very hard here today, Daddy. Father, there's 168 hours in a week. We spend 166 of those hours out there, out there in the real world. So, Daddy, the two hours that we have here on Sunday mornings is not that we would just come into church and live, although we want to be alive. It's so that we could go out in the world and we could live and we could show the world that we have a good, good Father. Oh, thank you, Father, that you have stripped away the condemnation off of my life. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And that is exactly where you are. That is exactly where I am. In Jesus' name, amen.